0: Good morning, I'm technically on vacation, so you don't really see me today, but I needed to come in and do a uh, premarital session with a couple, but, uh soon-to-be husband is getting deployed for, I don't know, four to six months, so probably before they get married, we need to finish premarital counseling, so that means today is the day, I don't know what happens if they fail, I guess they got four to six months to figure that out, don't they? Well, we have been in a series on knowing our why, and uh, I uh, greatly appreciate all the comments, particularly last week. I I mean, uh, so many people uh, felt like God really spoke to them and really awakened some things in them, and uh, it was pretty uh, neat that a little after 1 o'clock last week, the prayer ministry was still praying over people, which is awesome. We love for God to do what God does, and we always want to make that uh, opportunity and time for that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter five. That's where we'll really be today. We're going to look at another passage before that, but uh, that will be fine. We uh, we have been exploring this idea of our why. You know, we know our what. We know what we do, but the question that we've been asking is why do we do what we do, or why do we act the way we act? And uh, that's not always a real easy thing to answer. Uh, I want to start with this premise today. It's hard, if not impossible to fix a problem that you ultimately don't know what's wrong to begin with. It's near impossible to fix a problem that you don't really know what's wrong to begin with. Now, uh, I am not an automobile person. And so if if ever I am stranded on the side of the road, I'm going to do what all good people do. I'm going to go flip the hood up and I'm going to put my hands on the front of it, and I'm going to stare at that engine like I have some concept while I'm texting somebody that knows what to do, or my AAA to come get me. Uh, But the reality is, is that I don't know anything about automobiles, really. And so if I've got gas and I'm moving the direction I want to go, everything's good. But when something comes along as a problem, I'm kind of clueless. And that's kind of the way it is in our life, because Here's a question we ask ourselves over and over again, and as adults, we, we turn this question to our kids. Why do I keep doing what I'm doing? Why do I keep finding myself in the same place? Why, why are you doing that? You've gotten in trouble every day this week for that. And that question just keeps rolling, and it has been that way from the beginning. Many of us, many of us have been trying to solve us for a long, long time. We've spent money. We don't really know what the problem is. And I mean, we have a theory, we have a supposition. Some have lost jobs because they can't fix what's what's the why. Some have lost marriages, relationships, money, sleep, reputation, maybe even esteem. But ultimately, we don't know what's wrong. Maybe you went to see a therapist, and the therapist said, hey, here is exactly what's wrong, but there is a great difference in knowing the problem and being able to solve the problem. Those are two different things. So we're going to let Paul this morning give us an assessment of what's wrong with us, and then we're going to see if it helps our why and leads us towards a more healthy version Of ourselves. Now we're going to spend time in Romans 5, like I said, but to do that, we first need to look at this passage in Romans 7, kind of to set the stage for it. Paul is going to describe his own life before he found the solution to his own problem. Now, there may be some disagreement this morning about what we talk about, and that's fine, that's good, that's healthy to have some disagreement, but I think that there's going to be common ground as it relates to Paul declaring what he is seeing and experiencing in his own life. So, Romans 7, verse 15 and 16. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of do actually a lot of do-do, and it doesn't always line up the way that we want it to line up. And I think you agree with that, because here is the deal. We don't consistently do what we say we believe. That track with anybody? We don't consistently say and do what we believe. We know what to do, We would be better people, we'd be better fathers, husbands, spouses, we'd be better friends, we'd be better children if we did, but the reality is, is that we don't, and that's something that we all wrestle with. Now, bless you, bless you again. I hear if it's three, it's like you're a leprechaun and there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Paul was a devout Jew. And after his encounter with the Holy Spirit and giving himself to Christ, he gets to hang out with and encounter those who wrote the New Testament, particularly the Gospels. And in learning from them how they saw Jesus and what they learned from Jesus, he has some pretty insightful and relevant insights on what is needed to find the solution to our common problem. So this is what he says in Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is good. I have the desire to do what is good, but I what? I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. I just want to make sure that I'm in the right room. Does this resonate with anybody? Does this kind of sound like your life? Because it sure sounds like my life. Some of you aren't real certain right now, so I'm a little concerned about you. You see, we all identify with this, whether we're a believer or not, whether or not we like the Bible, don't like the Bible, don't trust the Bible, whether we have a whole different set of beliefs, whether we're spiritual, but we're not this, it doesn't matter where you are, we all find ourselves in this place. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter your belief system, doesn't matter, it's just the reality that we as people find ourselves in so here's the here's the why why don't we just do what we should do that's I mean, pretty simple isn't it? Why just do what you're supposed to do't that did you learn that growing up? Just go do what you're supposed to do? I never could do what I was supposed to do in the long term. I could do it immediately, like when punishment was like being meted out, but in the long run, there's a disconnect between knowing what I should do and doing what i Want to do? Anybody uh, that that tracks with everybody? I think so. I think we're all kind of in the same place. Um. So why don't we live the very best version of ourselves? I mean, we don't really need someone to tell us, "Hey, don't do that, don't say that, don't look at that, don't watch that, don't go there." We don't. I mean, also, we don't need somebody to tell us that. I mean, church would last like 13 minutes if if we could do this. We come in, sing some songs, and we'll be like, all right, got it. See you all later next week, and we would all be gone. But see, we haven't found a way to do it. Every generation has offered the same help advice. Books that are written today were written 40 years ago. They're old. We don't trust old, so we've thrown those out, and then new comes along, rewrites what's old, and they're making money telling us the same thing that people have told us for decades and decades and decades because there's nothing new under the sun. We just kind of keep regurgitating things because we keep finding ourselves in the same place the people before us found themselves. So we all have some understanding of what is wrong with us. And like I said earlier, we may have even tried to solve the problem. Now Paul, in this letter to the Romans, Romans is a complicated letter. Uh, Paul dictates, and someone else is writing this, And it's like Paul is talking, and he's obviously ADHD, because he takes some rabbit trails, and he veers off course quite a bit in the book of Romans. And he always comes back. But if you go through the book of Romans, it's like, man, he is there, 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 there. Uh, But some, you know, highly intelligent people have studied this, and they've given us some insights, and they've helped us kind of. But we all have this one thing in common, that there are things that we all wish we could stop doing. And then there are some people in here that there are some things you wish you could start doing. And Paul is saying, let me show you the problem with why you haven't or why you feel like you can't. So now Romans 5 and verse 6 haven't set that up. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, just seeing the word ungodly up there unsettles people because they're like, what are you saying about me? How dare you call me ungodly? All right, so let me give a little depth to us, help your feelings, because you probably got a participation award at some point in your life, and you don't know what to do with that. So we are not perfect. Not perfect. That's right. We're not perfect. God is perfect. Being that we are not perfect, and God is, that means that we are imperfect, or if you would rather, unperfect. And unperfect means we are ungodly because we're not like God. So what does Scripture teach us? It teaches that Christ came to die for the not perfect. That would be you and I. He is the great I am. We are the great I am not. He is the one. We need the one. He is holy other, and we are other than holy because we aren't him. But yet there's this amazing thought that at the right time, when we were powerless, when we didn't have any way to help ourselves, Christ would come, and he would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, that offends people. It is one of the barriers for people to accept the story of Jesus because they're like, look, I'm not that bad. And you say, I'm ungodly. Well, we are ungodly because we're not perfect. I don't know if you've looked, but you make mistakes. You make bad choices. I make bad choices. Well, how dare you say I make bad choices? You're hurting my feelings. That is what reality does. It hurts our feelings. It brings us into awareness. We are all on a level playing field. We know that we're ungodly. Why don't we just admit it? It's another barrier because the church has pretended like, hey, we've got it all together. We don't have any problems. We come to church. We have a smiley face. We have a nice outfit. We do all the right things. And the world is going, look, I know I'm messed up, but you act like you're not. What we know in this church, we're messed up. And that starts at the top and the bottom. And we just kind of all meet in the middle. We're all on a level playing field because we know that we're ungodly. Christ, though, died for the ungodly. Now, listen, that that's an odd deal. Why would God die for the broken? Why would God die for the imperfect? Because that's who God is. He loves. There's creation. He also understands we couldn't do anything to help ourselves. Romans 5, 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Well, my grandmother, she was an amazing person. My grandmother was like, oh. I mean, I probably would. And that's kind of the way people think. But you go, I don't know if that person's worth me dying for. I don't know if that person's worth me going, hey, let me just willingly take this bullet for you. But yet it happens. But it's rare. And so Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is an outstanding truth. I mean, Paul, okay, Jewish household, raised to observe the law, raised to, and ultimately, it doesn't matter what law. It doesn't matter if it's the Levitical law. It doesn't matter if it's the Bible law. It doesn't matter if it's the law of your house. It doesn't matter what law. doesn't matter what law. You are raised, and there are certain structures that you grow up with but that law can do nothing for you. It can show you where you're wrong. It can show you where you fall short. It can show you your imperfection, but it can't do anything for you. It can't help you. So Paul is writing these words in Romans. He's writing this letter to these Jewish Christians in Rome, and it dawns on him, while Jesus is being nailed to a Roman cross, Me and my buddies are running around sinning like it's 1999. We are running around living our own way, doing our own thing without any regard to anything. And at that moment, he's aware of, oh my goodness, Jesus is being crucified and I'm out doing what I'm doing. Now, for us, we're 2,000 years beyond that, but what Jesus did then paid for our sins that happened then today, and the ones we haven't even committed yet, which, by the way, is an astounding thought. Christ died for our very sins. Paul is going to now head into some deep waters because that is beginning to bring an awareness of this why question that he talks about, writes about in Romans 7. Why do I not do what I know I should be doing? He He's going to give us an awareness. He's going to set a contrast. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a big deal. So we're going to take off a little bite this week. We're going to take off another bite next week, another bite the next week. And probably in the fourth week, we'll probably maybe have some idea of what he's trying to teach us maybe. But maybe you'll get it quicker than I am, but I'm a little slow. Um, So Paul is, is leading out into some deep waters, and here's the question that he's going to try to answer for us. Did we become ungodly because of something we did? Because if we became ungodly by something we did, we have a whole different problem than the one Paul is going to address. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, just as sin entered the world through one man. Now, Paul meanders through a lot of thoughts, and he keeps coming back again, but what he does is he calls us to look back at sin. Now, when we talk about sin, we normally talk about verbs. We talk about actions that don't line up or that aren't healthy or aren't good, but Paul is calling us back to look at sin as a noun. When we look at sin as a noun, it will change our whole perspective of how we deal with things. Because the question that he's writing about in Romans 7, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? Why do I find myself in actions that lead not where I want to be? That is a hamster wheel that's going to keep sending us back to the same place where we're always going to feel bad about ourselves, where there's no hope, where there's no life, there's no anything. So he says we've got to get back to looking at sin as a noun. There was a time, remember, when there was no sin. But then sin comes on the scene. Adam blows it. Sin enters the world like a disease, not just an activity or a verb. And we haven't been able to fix ourselves. For one thing, we've only dealt with the verbs. We haven't dealt with the noun. We've only dealt with the little side actions, which, by the way, are the symptoms of a bigger problem. But when we deal with sin as a noun, when we tackle head on the real problem we have, it puts things into perspective and propels us to live and think differently. It changes our why. On the heels of sin is death. It's what God told Adam that you sin. Death is going to follow. It's going to be right behind. It's going to be right on the heels. Now think about this. When we sin, when we blow it, there are things in our relationships that die. Maybe you had a marriage die because of sin. Our finances get wrecked and destroyed because of sin. Whenever sin goes, death follows close behind. Adam sin, sin enters the world then comes the consequence of death. Look what he says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to who? All people, because all sin. Now that's really like deep. Stop and think about this for a minute. He isn't saying that death came because you and I eventually ended up sinning. Once there was just Adam, Adam the first man, but we were all in Adam. We did what Adam did because we were all in Adam because he was the first person. We were all in sin. All the great saints born into the sin of Adam. And he is saying that when Adam sinned, it is as if we sinned. When sin contaminated Adam, it contaminated the entire human race. Our problem isn't our sin name. Our problem is, is that we were born a sinner. And it didn't have anything necessarily that we did. It's what we were born into. And somebody's saying, that's not fair. That's not fair because Adam blew it for the rest of us. You know what? Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you've ever held a drug baby. As foster parents, we would take care of babies that were I mean, just wrecked with the decisions of of birth parents. And they scream, and they're in torment and pain, and they obviously are so helpless they can't do anything for them, and their life is wrecked by the sins of another. And that's not fair. It's not fair, but it's the truth. Our reality is Adam blew it, and we were born into the line of we were born into the struggle and the sin of Adam. And it's not fair, but it's the truth. Now, why am I telling you all that? No one taught you how to sin. You ever thought about that? No one said, hey, Sinner uh, 101 is uh, happening this Saturday. Come and I'll teach you. We, we found ourselves doing things that aren't right. It comes naturally. Sin, Paul says, came through Adam's trespass. It infected the entire human race. It affected the entire human race. It usually kicks in around two or three years of age. You hear parents talk, Oh, my baby is so sweet. I mean, he is just, they are just, she is just the most amazing. I've never seen a kid like it. And then a few months later, I don't know what happened to my sweet baby. And Paul would say, I know exactly what happened. They were born in the line of Adam. It's been there all along. It's just now showing up. And it's going to show up in every human being. If it's unchecked, that sin will lead to pain, and death is going to follow. So when did we sin to cause all this? Well, we didn't. It didn't happen in our lifetime. We sinned when Adam sinned. And he is going to show us, Paul is, a contrast between being in the line of Adam and then being in the line of Christ. Notice what he says in 5.15. So he talks about the trespass coming through one man. And then he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is a right standing with God. The gift is righteousness. The gift is justification. God gives that gift. When we receive that gift, God sees someone who is completely forgiven, as if we have never sinned. He says the gift is not like the trespass. The trespass was the one action of Adam in the garden that condemned all men. The gift we receive is different than the trespass. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, if we were all born dead because of the trespass of Adam, he says, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? There's the contrast. Because we are in the line of Adam, we were born in death, in sin. That's just the way it's going to be. Here's the introduction of Paul to the hero of the story. The character that Paul is going to write about in his narrative is Christ, but he's got to contrast it with what we all know. The question we keep asking ourselves, why do I keep doing what I'm doing? Why am I not doing what I should be doing? Why do I not do what I want to do? Why do I do what's healthy and right? Why do I keep finding myself? When we come to Christ, we are taken out of Adam, and we're placed into Christ. We're taken out of death, and we're placed into life. The next few verses, he's going to declare the contrast is so radical, so practical, so real, and we can't miss it. The problem is is that most of us, if you grew up in any type of religious home, you missed it. Because that's not what you were taught. Too many people are sold a bag of goods, that it's all about being good and being good enough that maybe one day, maybe just maybe, if you're good enough and you do all the right things and all the right reasons and all the right times, maybe you'll get to go to heaven. Paul never mentions heaven or hell in any of this discourse because that's not the point. It has nothing to do with what Paul says. Paul is starting a discussion aimed at people who are struggling with the question, why can't I do what I ought to do? Why is it that there's this power that rules me at times, and I make decisions that I know that there's going to be guilt and shame and hurt and regret? Why does that power get to me every time? And then an even bigger question: is there a way? To escape it. You see, that's driven by the reality that we were born in Adam. But Paul says, but the gift, but the gift. Right standing with God is more powerful than the power that came from being born in Adam. Now that's not the way we've probably been taught this. 516, Romans nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. He's contrasting them, but he's saying, look, they're not even comparable. Because it resulted in something bigger. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Didn't say it was our sin, but yet we're included in it because we're born in Adam. We were born condemned not because of anything we did, because we were born from the one man Adam who rebelled against God. And then he says, But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. But the gift that followed the sin brought justification. And if you grew up in church, this is where somebody's going to stand up and shout and say, oh yeah, maybe we get to go to heaven when we die. And Paul would say, look, that's not even what I'm talking about. It's far more practical than that. The implications of this is right now. In those areas where you and I find ourselves that we can't get it right, where you can't please anyone, where you feel like I can't please God, I can't please myself, I can't please my spouse, I can't please my mama, my grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, my anybody, and you feel that way because sin is warring against you, Paul would say it isn't about someday or one day. The implications of moving from being in Adam to in Christ are about living a lifestyle here and now that isn't about to try harder, because that's not helping anybody, by the way. It's not about what we've tried. It's about what God says is true of us. Look at what he says in Romans five seventeen: For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Reign in life. Reign in life today. Not, why can't I get it right? Why am I such a horrible person? Why am I such a loser? Why, why, why? It changes the whole folks. Like I said, we're taking a little bite today. We'll take a little more bite next week. We'll take a little more bite next week. It is possible to live in Christ today and supersede the life we had in Adam. 5.18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Adam did something wrong, and it affected all people. You agree with that? Jesus did something right, and it is undone what Adam did. But we live as if Adam has more power than Christ. Therein lies our Romans 7 problem. When we give what is death more power than what brought life, we're going to keep coming back to why or oh, why oh why oh why. Adam brought condemnation in one act. Jesus is in one act gave us the keys and the power to live a new life. Romans 5 19 for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through, also through the obedience of the one man, You'll say it with me, the many will be made righteous. That's a game changer. It is far cry that truth when it settles in us, when we live from that perspective, as opposed to the I, why, why am I so, whatever. If our approach to the Christian life is, hey God, thank you so much for forgiving me of my sin, Now I'm going to do the very best I can, and I'm going to try really hard to be just like Jesus. And God's going to go, good luck with that. That's what led you to where you were now. We don't need more commandments. We can't pull it off. We can't obey the commandments. There are life-altering implications when we accept what Christ has done. When we're taken out of Adam and we're placed into Christ, we don't find ourselves in the pit of despair every other moment. It eradicates the guilt, the regret, the shame. Now, it's not saying you don't go, God. But it is not a woe is me. It is a thank you for the gift. Thank you for the gift. We don't get what Christ has done for us. Our mode of operation as human beings is this. God, thank you what you've done for me. And then we go and we tell him all the things we're going to go and do for him. The problem is is that we're never going to follow through and do all the things that we said we're going to do for him. How many of you have been in that desperate situation where you bartered with God? Oh, God, please. If my mama doesn't find out about this, I'll go to Sunday school. I'll, and for about a week, maybe three days, you're you're on the line. You're like, man, I'm perfect. In like three and a half days, you're like, "Woohoo! forget that. Mom doesn't know. (coughs) Over the next few weeks, we're going to try to unpack how to live in the reality that God has taken us out of the line of Adam, and he's drawn us back into the system that we were originally intended to be, created in the image of God. Adam pulled a little number on all of us. We are so caught in the system of Adam that we have bought into this lie that we deserve death, that we deserve unhappiness, that we deserve chaos because, you know, we're bad people. He did not call us bad people. He calls us ungodly people. We're not like God, which is the reason, by the way, that God died for us because we couldn't die for ourselves. Because He died, we get to surrender. And then we're taken out of the death system and we're placed into the life system. And then we don't have to live in fear. Then we don't have to live in shame. We don't have to live in the, oh, my goodness, what have I done now? We get to live. And it's a whole different perspective. Like I said, we're taking off a little little bite this week. Just keep taking a few bites at a time and see if we can't wrap our heads around this. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we, uh, if we're honest, we feel so much in line with Adam because his story is our story. And yet really the reality is our story before Adam sinned was that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the creation of the world. Adam was a detour. But our real hope, our real calling, our real life is found in the one who came and brought the gift. Because the gift of justification, the gift of right standing with you is the truth that you have spoken about us. And Lord, I pray that we can begin moving out of the system of guilt and shame and death that Adam brought. And we can begin accepting the reality and the truth of who you say we are and what you have done for all time. Lord, that we wouldn't be less righteous. We would be more righteous because we're living from the side of the gift that overcame the trespass. So this morning, Lord, would you just speak into our hearts? Would you, God, download the truth that we all need to receive? that it isn't a go and grin and bear it until Jesus comes. It isn't a go and do all the work in the world. It's live in the reality of who you said we are and what's possible because of your love for us. In the name of Jesus. Communion is set up, and uh, we as a church, if you've not ever been here, we, we take communion every Sunday. It's not a command. It's not you have to, but it's a reminder of the gift. It's a reminder of the finished work of Christ. It's a reminder that what he's done, he's done for all time. And it gives us a chance to recenter ourselves on our life is in Christ. And so maybe this morning, a good question would be, if you keep finding yourself asking, why do I keep doing what I'm doing? Maybe you ought to ask, God, help me or show me why I keep seeing myself in the line of Adam." when you've placed me in the line of Christ.